Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Hanukkah is an unbelievable holiday, and I think that, I'll just speak for myself, the more I learn about it, the more I appreciate it, and I think that a lot of people don't really fully appreciate its depth because of when it happens during the year. And there's another big holiday from another religion at this time of year. And so I think sometimes the holiday of Hanukkah gets contextualized in a way that's really kind of unfair to Hanukkah because we don't really sort of like plunge into really what's going on with Hanukkah. Hanukkah is unbelievable. Hanukkah is really about the infinite light of Hashem and how the light of Hashem can break through absolutely every single barrier and every single level. So let me just start off with something that I heard from Reb Shlomo years ago, an amazing little piece of information, but this will be the gateway to understanding more things, which is that of all the Jewish holidays, Hanukkah is the only one that goes over over two months. That's that's very interesting, and we're going to go into that a little bit more deeply. It starts in the month of Kislev and then goes into the month of Teves, which is the month that we're in right now. Today is the first day of the month of Teves, a a new month. So if you think about it, that's, that's actually significant because each of the months are not just sort of random assignments of categories. Each month is a distinct bundle of energy, if you will. With, with barriers or borders around it, making it distinct from it every other month. So for the holiday of Hanukkah to go from one month into another month, that means that the light of Hanukkah is breaking through. Do you, do you understand? So, so that's, that's, that's meaningful. That's meaningful. You see, let me take it to the next level now, Okay. A lot of people will tell you, like, do you know when the holiday, here's the question, do you know when the holiday of Hanukkah was established? So I would say that most people, even those people who are familiar with the story of Hanukkah, don't know the answer to this question. So let me tell you what most people think, and then I'll tell you what the Gomorrah itself tells us, okay? Which is that there was a war, and then the, the Jews were able to take over the area of the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple. They cleansed it. They went to light the menorah. There was no oil that was left that, was, that hadn't been impurified. They found one little jar. That jar didn't last for one day, which it was supposed to, but lasted for eight days. And everyone was so amazed, they established the holiday of Hanukkah for all the generations. All of that was right, except the last part. (laughs) That's not when the holiday of Hanukkah was established. It's actually a much more interesting, surprising answer. And again, this this is in the Talmud. It was the next year that they established the holiday of Hanukkah. And what happened basically was like the, the sages, the leaders of the generation were encountered that day again, the 25th day of Kislev, which is the first day of Hanukkah. And one says to the other, do you feel that? Yeah. Do you feel that? And they realized that the light of Hanukkah had returned, that this miraculous light had returned. 
And then they realized that this was not a one-time miraculous occurrence. By the way, there's a whole list, a whole book from, from the times of the Holy Temple. We don't have it anymore. But it was a compilation of all of the miracles that happened to the Jewish people. But, but there were a lot of them. There were a lot of them. But only a, a couple were made into holidays. So, so this is when the leaders of the generation said, you know something? This was not just a simple one-time miracle. This light is coming back. This is something for all of the generations. Okay. So that's the interesting piece of information, but now let me integrate it with the point that we said earlier. Remember how I told you how the light of Hanukkah goes from one month and it goes into another month, right? Which is like, shows you the power of the light. Now let's think about what we just learned a second ago. The light of Hanukkah went from one year into another year. <laughs> it broke through it broke through from one year into another year. Now, if there are boundaries around each of the months, what is the boundary around a year? So the light of Hanukkah is so powerful. It's so powerful. And one of the things that I think that we have to appreciate more fully is that we tend to think that, you know, we're, we, th these are very useful terms that I'm about to say, and I use them all the time. Reb Shlomo used them all the time. Very useful to think in these ways, but we also have to understand these two terms in a deeper way, too. So let's, let's just say the two terms, the finite and the infinite, right? Because really all of reality is the interplay between the infinite and the finite. If you want to boil down all of reality from our perspective, it's the interplay between the infinite and the finite. Okay, great. So here's what we think. We think that right now we exist amidst the realm of the finite, and then up there in heaven is the infinite. That, that's how we tend to think about it. But that's actually not accurate at all, because God is present in this dimension that we inhabit as much as he is in the higher heavens. It's just that he's more concealed. God is no less present here in this realm, in our lives, in this room, right now, wherever you go. God is no less present than he is in the highest heavens. So if that's the case, that means that what I, a moment ago, was calling the finite, <laughs> actually my baseline for my own life is the infinite. But now we've got a new idea, which is levels of infinity. Wow, okay. So in other words, what I was previously calling the finite is actually infinite. We're swimming in godliness right now. But now you've got levels of infinity where God's presence and in infinite life becomes more and more revealed. And so the idea of, again, Hanukkah is God's light is cutting through everything. Okay. So now, I want to tell you a story that happened to me this week that's still blowing my mind. But before we do that, I have to tell you a Torah that I heard in the name of the Satmar Rebbe. Amazing, amazing Torah. So everybody knows, everybody knows, and the Gomorrah talks about it, that when you're in your mother's womb 
an angel comes and teaches you the entire Torah. And, and one of the details that the Gemara says is that there's a lamp above your head, right? Providing light. And then, you know, because we're always saying, or Torah, right? This is another aspect of Hanukkah. The whole world is made out of light. God made the world out of light. So, and, and God also made the world out of Torah. So, or Torah, the light of Torah. These two things go together very much. So it makes sense that while you're in your mother's womb and you're learning the Torah, that there's a light above your head, this lamp above your head. And then, of course, before you're born or when you're born, an angel touches your mouth and then you forget it. So everybody has the same question, which is that if you're going to forget it, why did you learn it to begin with? So there are good answers to this question, but this is not really where we're at right now. But since we raised the question, let's just give a couple of classic answers, okay? One is, is that even though you're forgetting it upstairs, so to speak, meaning to say consciously, it stays in you, right? And then when you hear Torah during your life, you feel that special resonance, right? You feel that it feels right. You feel at home when you hear it. And so you know that it's true. Okay, so that's, that's one level. Another level is that it continues to direct you on an unconscious level. In other words, that Torah that you learn in your mother's womb, even though consciously you forget it, it remains inside of you like a GPS. And over the course of your lifetime, it will direct you to holy places, right? Like sometimes a lot of us have that story in our own lives that, you know, myself included, where you didn't grow up in a classically, you know, Torah observant home. And yet somehow you were directed. You don't even know how exactly you were directed. I remember one of the turning points in my life. I was in Westwood Village here in California and I saw a flyer on a own post. It said, Jewish mysticism class taught by Schwarzschild of Shalom, right? And I thought to myself, I like Jewish mysticism. <laughs> I should attend that class. And I remember, I, I went to the first session, and, and I remember one moment from that class. Rabbi Shlomo Shorts, Allah Shalom, was sitting at the head of the table. This was in the uh, 741 Gailey Avenue at the Chabad of Westwood there. And, and I remember he rattled off something, and it wasn't even necessarily the point he was making. It sort of was, but he was saying it in such a almost unenthusiastic way, even though he was a very enthusiastic person. He was going, yeah, so anyway, so the reason why God created the world was da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> and I was thinking, it made such an impression on me that we are so knowledgeable and familiar with the reason why God created the world that this is like old news. Like he's sharing this like this is old news. So how much do we know about the universe, about our lives, that that's like something that he's just kind of rattling off. Anyway, so what led me to that flyer? So that's the GPS that's inside of us, right? That's the GPS that remains inside of us. And, and it directs us to holy places. But anyway, I'm going to answer a different question. 
Again, you're learning the Torah from an angel. There's a lamp above your head. The Satmar Rebbe asks this question. What happened to the lamp? <laughs> like, who would even think to ask such a question? What happened to the lamp? And you know what he says? He says, the lamp is restored to you. That's your Hanukkah menorah. That the light of the Torah that you forgot in your mother's womb is restored to you when you're lighting the menorah. Now, let me add one more layer to this, and that will make even more sense, okay? Reb Shlomo asks a question, which is that all of us were at Mount Sinai when the Torah was given. That's, that's the Torah tradition. You were either there in body form, because you left Egypt and you were alive at that time, or your soul was there, right? So the soul of everyone who is ever going to be Jewish was at Mount Sinai. So based on that, Reb Shlomo asked the following question, which is, if that's the case, if you already got the Torah, would you need to get the Torah again in your mother's womb? Is that a great question? And the answer is because, the answer that he gives is because at Mount Sinai, you got the national mission. In your mother's womb, you get your personal mission, what you personally need to accomplish during your lifetime. So now let's add that to the teaching of the Satmar Rebbe. That means that when you're lighting the menorah, you're not just getting that light of the Torah that you learned in your mother's womb. You are getting your personal mission restored to you. This is unbelievable. So based on this, I want to say the following, which is, I think, and I never thought of it this way before. This is like a new kind of like thought for me, that of all the Jewish holidays, Hanukkah is the most personal holiday. Because think about it. You are put back in touch with your personal mission. That's, that's meaningful. Not only that, but I'll show you a halachic support for what I just said. Hanukkah is unique among all the Jewish holidays in that we have this concept called Ishu Beso, which means every person in their house. Which means that halachically speaking, the proper place to light your menorah is in your home. Do you understand? And, and if you want to be a little bit kind of like far out about it, what is your home except an echo of your original home, which is your mother's womb? Right? Yishu Beso. Like, again, because you're getting in touch with the personal aspect of the holiday. Not only that, but it also gives you an additional appreciation. They say that the, 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 the way to beautify the lighting of the menorah the most is for each person to do it individually, right? Now there's certain traditions, and these are very holy also, where one person lights for the whole family, that's also very holy. But now you can understand the logic behind the idea that each person is lighting their own menorah. Right? Because normally speaking, that's, that's, that's not obvious, that thought. Because it's so personal. That's the point. The reason why that's not so obvious is because, for instance, when it comes to making Kiddush Friday night, the traditional halacha, what we would say the normative halacha, is that the greatest sanctification is that one person says Kiddush for a large group of people. 
But the Chabad custom is that every man over 13 is saying it for themselves Friday night. So, you know, you have these, these different kind of like path, pathways in terms of the observance of the mitzvot. So you have it also by the menorah. By the menorah in many homes, it's one person lighting for the household. But then you also have this idea that each person is lighting their own menorah. And that very much connects with the idea that you are being personally restored to the Torah that you personally learned. Now, with that in mind, I want to tell you the story that was blowing my mind that, that I refer to. Now we have the, the background for it. You ready? I was learning these ideas with my wife, Shabbos lunch last week. Okay, it's just the two of us at the table. And we're talking about these things. And my wife asks me the following question. Actually, she wasn't asking me. She was wondering aloud. Does a convert learn the Torah from an angel in their mother's womb? That was her question. So, you know, we kind of thought about it for a while. That was Shabbos. The next day, I get an invitation to speak before a group for that Tuesday night. Okay, so this is, my wife asked that question. That was Shabbos, so Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Three days later, I share some of these thoughts that I just shared with you, right? How you're restored with the Torah by the menorah, right? That you learned in your mother's womb from the Satmarit. After the talk, this woman comes up to me. She's like very excited. She wants to tell me something. She says, I want you to know I'm a convert. I said, that's, you know, that's amazing. That's such an accomplishment. And she says, no, 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 that's, that's not why I'm telling you. She says, I'm telling you because when I was growing up, when I was 14 years old, I was so drawn to Hanukkah. And it wasn't, I didn't have any Jewish influence in my life. I was just taken with Hanukkah. And when I was 14 years old, it was so much inside me that I had someone make a menorah out of wood for me. And she said, again, she's 14 years old. She's not Jewish. She said, I would light the menorah and I got the blessings off the internet. And I would say the blessings and I would light the menorah. And she said to me, now I know why I was so drawn to the menorah and the light of Hanukkah, because this was the Torah that I was learning when I was inside my mother's womb. I have the, the chills, and it's only the eighth time I've told the story. <laughs> Do you hear how my wife asked this question, Shabbos day, and three days later, we're having this, this conversation. Unbelievable, right? And then I told this story on Shabbos, and someone comes up to me at the Kiddush, and she says, I want you to know something. I'm also a convert, and now I know why I had to come to shul today, because I never come to the shul, but I just had it in mind, I have to come today. So I brought my husband. I had to hear that story. She said, do you know why? Because when I was in Israel, 
She said, I was 21, and they, they, this was at the height of the Intifada. And so Israeli security was like really looking for, and you know, unfortunately they were trying to recruit non-Jewish people who would seem very, you know, like to go under the radar, like, like Arab men would recruit them, you know, to try to do something terrible. And she really seemed to be, she was exactly that profile of that person. And so they interrogated her. She told me for four hours, a very thorough investigation, right? And she, she said she didn't get upset or mad at all, but they couldn't understand. They said, you're Christian? She says, I'm Christian. They said, and yet you told us you didn't go to any Christian sites. Why? What are you doing here? Right? And do you have a boyfriend? Did he give you anything? And the only thing that she had, and she doesn't even know why she had it, was a Hanukkah menorah. <laughs> and she said, that was the one thing that I, and she hadn't converted yet. She said, but I was so drawn to this menorah. And so that was the one thing they had. So anyway, she said, they kept on asking me, why do you have this menorah? She says, now I know why I had the menorah. Right? Because this was the light. <laughs> that I was learning inside my mother's womb. Okay, so now I wanna go, I wanna go further into the aspect of, of this light, go deeper into it. So again, Hanukkah begins in the month of Kislev. Now every month has a different teaching as to what needs to be fixed. And this is contained in a, a book called the Sefer Yetzirah. The Sefer Yetzirah is one of the holiest books in Judaism. Super holy. Super, super holy. Okay? Like beyond. Like the little bits and pieces people like me can understand. But they're doing combinations of letters in order to like create things. Like it's really like really highest level type stuff. Okay? Interestingly... There's a debate, who wrote the Sefer Yetzirah? So there are three main opinions. One opinion is Adam HaRishon, the first person. And then that actually makes sense if you think about it, because remember, God created the world through the Hebrew letters. What that means is, remember, the, each Hebrew letter is like a different energy wavelength. And God combined these energies and created the material universe. So before we ate from the tree of knowledge and like the world sort of became much more concealed, the light of Hashem, you could really see the energies of the letters and things. In fact, that's, that's, that's one of the teachings of how Adam Arishan was able to name things because he could see the letters that God made these creatures out of and he was just reading the letters that were evident inside them. That's how he was able to name them. So since the Sefer Yetzirah talks about combinations of letters and things like that in the most divine way, it makes perfect sense that Adam HaRishon was the author. Okay, so that's one opinion. Another opinion, it was Avraham Avinu. Okay, wow, okay. Another opinion, the third opinion that I know of, is that it was Rabbi Akiva. 
Now remember, in the Talmud it says that Moshe Rabbeinu himself said, why did you give the Torah to me? Why didn't you give it to Rabbi Akiva? So in other words, if you want to appreciate the greatness of Rabbi Akiva for just one moment, Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, why, did you, why didn't you give the Torah to Rabbi Akiva? Okay, so these are our candidates for who authored the Sefer Yetzirah, Adam Arishon, Avram Avinu, or Rabbi Akiva. Do you know what this says to me? It means it doesn't matter who wrote the Sefer Yetzirah. <laughs> In other words, whoever wrote it, whoever wrote it was beyond, 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 beyond. That, that's what that teaching means to me. Okay, so with that as an introduction, the Sefer Yetzirah, in one of the more seemingly understandable things in the, in the book, goes through the different months and says, what are the fixings of the months? So interestingly, the fixing for the month of Kislev, and we're talking about that because that is the month of Hanukkah, and we're in Hanukkah right now, is the attribute of sleep. And that's very, very interesting because... What are we reading about this time in the Torah every single year? We're reading about dreams. Right? So dreams and sleep. The dreams of Yosef. Now, the word for dream in Hebrew is really interesting. It's chalom. That means dream. Now, what's so interesting about this word is that if you rearrange the letters, it spells lechem, which means bread. So now remember, each of the letters is like an energy wavelength. So it's the same word, but you're just manifesting the energy slightly differently. It's especially interesting because if you compare just conceptually the word for dreams, what, what a dream is and what bread is, they're two opposite ends of the spectrum. Dreams are so beyond, right? And bread is called the staff of life. You need bread to live. So, okay, that's interesting. So, so I'll give you my understanding of the fact that bread and dreams are the same word. Because your dreams sustain you. Dreams keep us alive. Dreams keep us alive. That's why it's the same word. They nourish us. They nourish us. Okay. So now, with that in mind, I was looking at the Parsha, and I was really stunned, really taken with this. Okay? By the way, before I get into that, let me just tell you something interesting. Yosef is making sure, because a famine is coming to Egypt, that they should have bread. So how does Yosef make sure that Egypt and the world, including the Jewish people, have bread? It happens through dreams. Isn't that interesting that his ascent to provide bread, lechem, is through chalom. It's the same pathway that that's accomplished. Do you want to hear something even more far out? I shared that yesterday and someone came up to me. He didn't want me to mention his name, but this was like, I was ready to fall over. If you take the gematria of Lechem, 
And then you add that to the, to add to that the gematria of chalom, right? That's the same word, right? So lechem plus chalom equals Yosef. Bread plus dreams numerically equals the gematria of the name Yosef. That awesome? That awesome? Yes. So, so how does that work? How does that work? Can I tell you how it works? Because the Torah is divine. That, that, that's because the Torah is from Hashem. The Torah is not written by people. So it's working on every single level, including the mathematical. That's, that's the only way that you can understand such a thing. Okay. So now, there's another gematria for Yosef, which is something surprising or interesting, very compelling, actually. I'll tell you something. Before, before I had children, when I, when I first got married, you know... Couples will think about names that they'd like to name their children. It's kind of a common thing. So I kind of hit on this name that I thought would be a, a nice name to name a child, which was Yosef Tzion. I don't know why that, that came to me, but I just thought that's a nice name, Yosef Tzion. And so I had it in mind for a while that, by the way, I never named a child that, but I thought that that would be a good name. Years later, I saw in a Torah book that the gematria of Yosef is Tzion. I didn't know. I didn't know. But this is a very important gematria, Yosef and Tzion, and let me tell you why. Tzion, of course, means Israel, or maybe more specifically, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. So why is that important, that Yosef and Jerusalem are the same? I'll tell you why. And remember, Yosef is the master of dreams. So Reb Shlomo said that there was a time in history, Jewish history, where there was only one Jew in the world who was in exile. And that was Yosef. Because his whole family was in Israel, but Yosef was in Egypt. And Reb Shlomo goes further. He says that to this day, right now, to this day, all of us get the strength, the ability, the power to remain Jews in exile because of Yosef. So now think about that gematria one more time. Now we can understand that Yosef, even when he was outside of Israel, Yosef is the same number as Sion, Yerushalayim, because Yosef's essence even when he was outside of Israel, was tied to the Holy Land. Okay. Now listen to this. When the Torah begins, and it's talking about the famine that's coming to Egypt, it keeps on using the same word, lechem, 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 meaning there's not going to be any bread in Egypt, right? Which means, basically, it's shorthand. The Torah is using lechem, as shorthand for food. So now, I want to share with you something that I found that came to me that just kind of blew my mind. The time comes now for Yaakov to send his sons, 
the heads of the tribes, right? Down into Egypt to get food. Now food, the way food has been referred to up until now is lechem. Remember, lechem also means dreams, right? Because our dreams sustain us. Yaakov tells his children, go down to Egypt and buy Shevet. It doesn't use the word lechem. It's translated in English as provisions. Why doesn't it say lechem? And so I want to say the following. I want to say the following. Because Yaakov doesn't want, doesn't need us to go down to Egypt to buy dreams. You know why? Because we have our dreams already. We have our own dreams. We don't need their dreams. We already have our own dreams to sustain us. You want to go something? You want to go down there so that we can have something to fill our be- bellies? Okay, that's fine. But dreams? You don't need to purchase their dreams. We have our own dreams. And that's true for us today. That's the light of Hanukkah, right? Cutting through, cutting through all the years, all the ages, and keeping us in tune with our own dreams. That's the light of the menorah. Keeping us, keeping us in tune with our own personal mission, with our own dreams. Now I'll tell you something, toward the end of the Parsha, okay, there's all sorts of twists and turns in the story, as you all know. The brothers come back now with Binyamin, right, to, to prove that, to prove that they're, they're people of truth, that everything that they said was, was true. And, and now Yosef throws a meal for them. And they're all together. So, so the Torah says that Yosef served the brothers. Remember, they don't know who Yosef is. Yosef knows who they are. The Torah says, Yosef served the brothers Lechem. That's something. The master of dreams, the master of dreams, he can give them Lechem. Shever the Egyptians can give us, right? But Yosef can give the brothers lechem. Yosef can restore to the brothers what our purpose in this world is. How to stay tied to our personal mission, how to stay tied to the land of Israel, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. So I'll tell you something very interesting that the Ishbitzer Rebbe says. He says that life is like a dream. Isn't that interesting? And it says in the Gomorrah that, that it's very, that there's a section in Gomorrah Brochus about dream interpretation. And they bring out a very important foundational thought, which is that the meaning of a dream, like was it a good dream, was it a bad dream? The meaning of a dream goes by the interpretation of the dream. That's why it's very important to give good interpretations to dreams, if you ever hear them. And if you can't think of a good interpretation, then you should always say, if anyone tells you their dream, it's a good dream. You should always say that, that's very important, right? And never say it's a bad dream. Never, never say that, never say that. 
And you can give, you can interpret your own dreams. And you always give a very favorable interpretation. And by the way, I heard that if there's a dream that really kind of rattles you and unsettles you, it's very good to give tzedakah, you give charity afterwards. And if it really rattles you, there's, you'll see at the back of the art scroll prayer book, there's a service that you can do with three good friends where it sort of like softens the dream, right? And back in the day, by the way, a person can still do this, but we say it's better to give tzedakah today. But if a person really has a bad dream, then it's, it can even be appropriate to fast the next day. And I'll tell you how far that goes. This is one of the most interesting halachas that I know. You're not allowed to fast on Shabbos. But they make an exception, according to Jewish law, classic halacha, that if a person has a, what they consider to be a really upsetting dream on Friday night, you're even allowed to fast on Shabbos. Why? Because that gives you pleasure to know that you're doing something about that bad dream. So because of the pleasure that that fast gives you, but now here's the interesting twist. Because you fasted on Shabbos, you actually during the week have to fast again for having fasted on Shabbos. <laughs> this is true, this is halacha. I know it's kind of humorous, but there's a serious point is being made. Anyway, the point is, the dream goes by and the interpretation. Now with that in mind, let's listen again to what I just told you from the Ishbitzer Rebbe, amazing teaching. He says, life is like a dream and life requires a positive interpretation. Think about it, think about it for a moment. How often, and the answer by the way is all of the time, how often do things happen to us in our life that confuses us? And you ask someone, how do you understand that? What do you think that person meant? Right? So you give a positive interpretation because that will determine the direction that your life goes in. Just like a dream requires a proper interpretation, your life also requires proper interpretations to send you in the right direction. So let me just share one more teaching with you. Classic teaching, classic, classic teaching, but it's so good. The battle of Hanukkah is the battle against the Greeks and the word for the Greeks is Yavan in, in Hebrew. And remember, the Greeks really had something that was very, very special about them, which was they really had a, a, a very exquisite sense of beauty. They really did. They really did. So, so what's wrong then with, with kind of like the Greek concept? You know, if, if they really nailed down beauty and proportionality in such a nice way, um, because they emphasized the exterior of it. They, they, it was too much about outer beauty. And, and once it became too much about outer beauty, then the whole thing became a lie. Right? And also just 
the beauty of our minds, the beauty of rationality. So we need rational thought. Rational thought allows us to make tremendous progress in the world. But to limit ourselves and to think that we're solely constricted to the rational understanding of things, that there aren't things beyond our ability to comprehend. See, I often think in terms of if you look at the zeitgeist today, like you look at the world today, I think that the world can be divided up in in this sense in two main groups. Those people who think that we don't know the answer to everything, but give us time, and in time we will eventually, because we're on the road, to knowing the answer to everything. It's just a matter of time. We don't know everything yet, but we will. Because everything ultimately is knowable, we're just not there yet. That's one group. The second group is, what are you talking about? (laughs) What are you talking about? Like, the mind is a creation of God. We are finite. God is infinite. The The finite is never going to become the infinite. At a certain point, we can't possibly know everything. Or as the Torah puts it so succinctly, God says, no one can see my face and live. Which means only God sees all of God. That's why I I think this Kutzker Torah is is so important, especially for our generation, which is the Kutzker Rebbe says, I would never worship a God I understood. Right? Because if you completely understood God, then you're also God. So Mazel Tov. So what do you need God for? In other words, one of the premises of God is that you will not understand him completely. That's one of the premises. There's so many people who are like, yeah, I'm intrigued by all this and I like it and I'm drawn to it. But unless you fully explain every single point to me, I'm I'm not fully in. But what are you, a joker? Like, think about it. Do you think that you're ever going to fully understand everything about everything? Right? I love this example. Like, do you, do you know how Advil works? <laughs> but you're very happy to take Advil if you've got a backache, right? Right? Do you know how your iPhone works? <laughs> you're very happy to text people. So when it comes to the truth of our own existence, we have to understand on a rational level, on a rational level, we have to accept that the total truth is beyond our rational ability to fully understand. That's a rational thought. That's a rational thought. Because there is an honest understanding and acceptance of our limitations. So this is the problem from the Greek standpoint. There's this overemphasis on outer beauty and on rationality. And if you overemphasize two beautiful things, rationality is beautiful. There are people, I'm not one of them, who stand in front of mathematical formulas and they see beauty like someone else standing in front of like a Matisse. And I get it. I'm not there because I don't know enough to... to appreciate it, but I get that there's beauty, like our artistic beauty, 
to rationality. I get it. I absolutely get it. And certainly to physicality, right? And I'm not just talking about people, buildings. You know, buildings are beautiful, or they can be. So Yavan is three lines, each longer than the last. It's one short line for the Yud of Yavan. Then the next letter is also a straight line above, a little bit longer. And then the Nun of Yavan is the longest line, a straight line, a final Nun all the way down. So you have this beautiful proportionality that the, it's like they talked about, like the literary modernists in the early 1920s, like Apollinaire would talk about, they would talk about pictograms, right? Where you would make words into pictures, the letters would form pictures. And so this is a beautiful pictogram because the letters themselves for Yavan express the proportionality and the Greek outlook. So now what's so interesting is, what did I tell you about Yosef? Yosef, you should know, was one of the most, most beautiful human beings that was ever created. So much so that the Egyptian kitchen workers, they said, would, when he would like, when his chariot would go, you know, down their street, they would know, you know, and they would climb the walls and they would continue to peel their you know, produce, because they had to keep working for the household. And they would peel their skin and peel their fingers because they were so taken by his beauty that they didn't even realize that they weren't peeling the vegetables anymore. They were peeling their own skin. That's how, like, transcendent his looks were. Okay? So he was beauty. But what do we say? Yosef Hatzadik. Yosef the righteous one. Yosef the holy one because he used his beauty for holiness. Now, what did we say? Yosef is gematria Tzion. The first letter of Tzion is the letter Tzadik. And do you know what the next three letters spell? Yavan, Greek. When you put the Tzadik in front of quote-unquote classical beauty, you create Yerushalayim. You create the beauty of holiness. And this is what we want. This is what we're trying to bring to the world. Not just beauty exists in the physical realm, but that beauty is holy. And true holiness is beautiful. And that's the expression. And that's the idea that the light doesn't stop. The light just keeps on going and going and going and going and going. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.